everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Talking Pit. Um, I have a, a special guest uh, for me, at least, uh, someone that I have a little bit of background with, Connor Shep, um, joining us today. And Connor, who's definitely been uh, a, a huge asset for the staff at Liberty and then several different staffs before there. And um, Connor, just kind of want to get to talk to you and a little bit about kind of what your role is, some of the cool stuff that you're doing at Liberty and um yeah just exciting things that you guys have going on so um just to kind of start off uh, again welcome and uh just to give uh, anyone who may not know just a little bit of a brief background about yourself uh kind of where you've been where you're at now and uh kind of the, a little bit of an unorthodox path path that you may have had getting there so the the floor is yours there yeah thanks man appreciate you guys having me on um anytime we get to talk to you aaron and you know talk training and performance. It's, uh, you know, it's awesome. So looking forward to it, but yeah. So grew up in South Dakota, uh, went on to play football at a really small division two school where I got my exercise science degree. From there, I went on to intern at a handful of places. We started out at Colorado state with football, uh, went to Wake Forest with men's and women's basketball on to the university of Miami with football to Mississippi state with football. Uh, ended up taking my first position actually at Pitts on the football side uh, where assistant football kind of headed up some more return to play uh, reconditioning aspect of things and then sports science avenues. Any initiatives there from a GPS standpoint. Had some movements uh, back in Mississippi State, so I was fortunate enough to get brought back on there uh, where I spent a little over a year. Um, staff got let go uh, at the end of the season there. Kind of hung around on the Olympic side where you and I got to spend a little bit of time together before COVID actually hit. Uh, from that standpoint, I moved home. Wasn't really sure what was going to happen. Everybody was kind of on a hiring freeze at that time. And then, you know, I'd fortunately made a connection with uh, somebody out in Arizona. And that's when Buddy Morris brought me on to intern uh, with him and the Arizona Cardinals for the 2020 season. Uh, finished that season up and didn't really have a whole lot going on at the time. I had, you know, a lot of the schools were still under hiring freezes. Um, wasn't really a whole lot of opportunities out there at that time. So I just kind of got into the private sector, started training high school kids, uh, middle school kids, elementary kids, after school programs, trying to kind of keep um, some skin in the game. And then, yeah, I'd spent all this time in football, but I was just so ready to kind of, you know, get back into things and, had this opportunity to come here, um, applied for a job just kind of out of the blue at Liberty University. I didn't know a whole lot about it at the time and really wasn't sure what the position entailed. Uh, it's where I met Henry Barrera, who decided to bring me on at, you know, kind of the first talk. It was, you know, you're going to come here, you're going to have one team and you're going to kind of oversee just a couple of our sports science initiatives. And I was like, cool. Um, that was something that you know, being on the football side, you you primarily work as a, you know, you're a strength and conditioning coach first, but then you kind of get your own little sector of the program. And I'd always kind of gravitate towards sports science. So coming here, I thought it was going to be great. Um, you know, I was super excited and I show up and I find out that it's, you know, very much sports science uh, driven and it was almost more of an administrative position. Uh but it's been great. I've been really fortunate. Um, it's it's humbled me a lot, but I've been really, really fortunate to kind of, you know, 
spend some time in this role and kind of develop on uh, the sports science side of things, as well as, you know, being the performance coach for a men's soccer program here. So, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. How was that? Uh, I guess that, that transition. Um, yeah. I, th- I feel like usually people kind of find their niche and, um, either like Olympic sports or football or or maybe basketball. And then that's just kind of like their, their career path. And, um, it, not quite as frequent to people kind of, you know, transition around from, from one to the other. Uh, how was the transition from football to the more like Olympic sports side or, you know, was it, uh, you know, pretty similar or were, were there any challenges associated with that? Yeah, no, absolutely. It is a, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, I've, I've gotten to work. I worked in the high school setting. I've worked in the private sector. I've worked in, you know, I played division two football where I interned with all of our teams there and Olympic side and, you know, football and a little bit of time in the NFL. And at the end of the day, it's, it's still people and it's still training. Um, but it is, there's definitely some differences. Um, I think each sporting culture that, you know, you know, is going to have their own unique aspects that you have to work around. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a challenge when I first got here because um, it was really my first time kind of calling the shots on the Olympic side and kind of overseeing a program and, you know, having to work with a bunch of others. Um, but I really enjoyed that part. You know, I've, I got into football, I think, originally because, you know, I played football and that's what I knew and that's what I was comfortable with. And then you start to get exposed to some of these other things and you start to see, you know, there's pros and cons to both sides. Um but I've really, you know, really enjoyed my time with it. It's, you know, if I give advice to like any young coach out there is to like, you know, find a sport that you have, you know, really no idea about and then just go all in on it. Um, Cause I can't tell you like how much it's helped me develop professionally when just like, you know, s- spending so much of my career on one side and then, you know, going to something like uh soccer where it couldn't be more day and night different. Um <laughs> from just a culture standpoint. Uh, yeah. No, that's awesome, man. And uh, at least from the outside looking in and uh, I'm sure on the inside, like it, it seems like you've, you've had a lot of success with uh, that team and that program in particular, but um, just overall departmentally on the, the sports science, the applied performance side over at Liberty too. Um, so that's awesome, man. I'm excited for you since we've, nice thinking about the old days at Mississippi state where you were kind of in limbo and we got to hang out with you for just a little while. And now seeing you really, uh, uh, for lack of better words, flourish in the the spot you're in. Uh, it's been cool to see. And now we're, we're, we're excited to talk a little bit, like you said, just a little bit more training with you now. So, um, yeah, kind of getting past that, you know, I, I think, uh, I want to get you're you're a great brain to pick, and uh, I, I want to get into a little bit more of kind of the maybe the nitty gritty on some of the 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 niche applications that you've had with uh, either the the Olympic sports program as a whole, maybe on the return to play side, or just you know the men's soccer team on the training side. Um, I know you just had a an, an awesome article come out uh, with with Sportsmith, just kind of going over. Um, the utility of ISOs and uh, the either the return to play interventions from that, or even just like the training implications with, with ISOs. Um, I think that historically it's definitely not been an overlooked um, aspect of training, but uh, it's been one that at least recently for me, that 
Um, I've personally found that really helpful to kind of dive a little bit deeper into and make a more uh, integral part of a lot of the programs for our team. So um, I guess uh, first thing, I, I think one of the things that you had in there that I really appreciated that uh, I think is a good takeaway uh, was just kind of the different phases that you've had laid out for um, like the the different isometric uh, variations when it comes to return to play athletes. And maybe if you can kind of take us through those um, and then along the way, um, if it fits like, you know, with those different phases of the return to play with ISOs, like are there are there much differences in how you would utilize those or progress those in like a non return to play setting? So, sorry, I know that's like a, a huge, like umbrella question. Um, hopefully it gives you a little bit of uh, freedom with how you want to answer it, but just kind of taking us through those phases and, you know, how you see it fit from both a return to play and non return to play standpoint. Yeah. So I think, you know, I'm going to try to kind of combine the two. I think, you know, with my role here, and, you know, some of my roles in my previous positions, I've spent a lot, a lot of time working in return to play. And, you know, if there's one thing I've kind of taken away from it, especially like the further we get away from initial injury and, you know, post-op is that, you know, training is um, rehab and rehab is training, right? There's no such thing as a rehab exercise or a training exercise. Um, they're one and the same, just on different ends of the spectrum. And just like really all training, you know, and there's a lot of lenses to look through for it. But for me, it's like, all training and all rehab live on this kind of same continuum of, you know, general to specific, simple to complex, isolated to integrated, uh, short to long, slow to fast, open to cl or close to open, whatever that is, right? But, like, those same progressions and principles are always going to apply to both rehab and training. But I think that's where I've found so much value in isometrics, specifically in the return to play, is just how easy they are to manipulate and how many benefits they have. I think the cool thing, like you kind of talked about is that, you know, isometrics have been around for a long time. Um, you know, looking back, I think even in like the twenties and thirties, they were starting to mess around with, you know, bending steel bars and overcoming isometrics and stuff like that. But I think the really, really cool thing due to like some of these awesome people in the field, you know, Daniel Yum, Keith Barr, uh, Alex Natera and all his stuff, Cal Dietz, like, we've started to find really specific ways to target very specific adaptations by manipulating isometrics, whether that's, you know, joint angles, uh, time under tension, motor contraction, you know, the type of isometrics that you're using. So I'd say like specifically on a return to play standpoint, like if we're looking at a long-term rehab scenario, we're almost always going to start out with just long extensive isometrics. Right. So for me, what that means is, you know, Let's take an ACL, for example. It's going to be a very traumatic experience for that athlete. And that's going to cause, obviously, one, a lot of structural damage, but I think more importantly, a lot of neural inhibitions. And for me, like the biggest takeaway I've had from like working with isometrics was actually from Buddy Morris. And the three things he always told me about isometrics is, is they educate, isolate, and potentiate. Right. And so, like for me, at that lower level kind of foundational standpoint of education, you know, the great thing about isometrics, anytime you're holding that position, you're getting that constant sensory feedback from that, you know, afferent knee afferent response from the brain to the body. And I think that's where a lot of these things need to start, whether that's in return to play or even just like developmental athletes, right? Of just like 
starting with postures, positions, you know, patterns, right? Identifying, okay, where do we need to improve? Do we need to learn to, you know, hold this position, stack the column, whatever that is, and just building stability in that position while at the same time increasing structural capacity and getting some of those more morphological adaptations from those more extensive isometrics, I think has so much value. And then from there, we just really work along that same continuum based upon the athlete prioritizing intensity, right? So I think, you know, something that I've been a big believer in, you know, listening to people like Boo Shexnader, uh, Ryan Grubbs, you know, talking about some of these return to play protocols is that oftentimes we chase volume for far too long when really what we're should be working towards is intensity. And so for me, it's just working from those more extensive isometrics to, you know, some overcoming isometrics and stable positions to yielding isometrics to eventually ballistic isometrics. And then, you know, kind of using some peaking strategies with switches, catches, drops, and things like that. Um, and that's kind of just, you know, the simple complex or the si simple system that I've kind of used for this return to play standpoint. And to kind of come back to your second question, I think when we're working with, you know, athletes, it's still going to kind of follow that same continuum. But the cool thing about it is, and kind of going back to that, you know, educates, isolate, potentiate, the isolate standpoint of there's so many different variables that we can manipulate to target specific adaptations with these things. We can train athletes on a completely different spectrum, right? So let's say we have, you know, a first year athlete, super untrained coming into the program, you know, no different than, you know, the injured athlete coming back. I haven't found much of a better tool than just extensive isometrics, right? Um, on the other hand, let's say we have a fifth year senior soccer player in the middle of the season, you know, he's getting beat up. There's a ton of sporting volume, outside stressors and all these different things. You know, traditional strength training doesn't necessarily lend itself to that. But what I've found is I've had so much success with just, you know, shallow joint angle, uh, overcoming isometrics, right? And that kind of takes me to the last point of, you know, potentiate is like, I think one of the, the best benefits about isometrics is it's it's such a low learning curve. It's such a low cognitive load and we get such a high output, right? Like Bush Nader always talks about, we can't be, we can be intense or we be, can be complex, but we can't be both. And because of isometrics and just the nature of them, we get this super high potent stimulus at a really relatively low cost. And man, I think on the Olympic side that, you know, some of these athletes come in with a relatively low training age and I mean, you know how it is, man, these kids, they don't, they don't really ever stop playing their sport. Right. Like the thing I loved about football, Aaron, was that, you know, you have this huge off season where you can really just plan everything out linear, right? Like you got eight months to train these dudes and you have to because of the physical demands of the sport. But because so much of the demands on this side with a lot of these teams is technical tactical, they have to spend most of the year playing their sport, which is important, right? But we also know that we still need to develop these physical qualities. So they have such a low training age though, that using just some of these rudimentary isometrics can give you such a bang for your buck and allow us to continue to progress them over time. 
especially during times of like high sporting activity, which I kind of already alluded to, which seems to be always right. Yeah, no doubt. Um, no, one thing that uh, I love that you mentioned, I, I know it's been really, I guess, beneficial to us um, is just like the, the, manipulability whatever the word i'm trying to say is like how how well you can manipulate like um again just the the positions the intensity um the method of the isos um and to your point with olympic sports like not only do a lot of people come in with such a low training age but overall just the variability in training age that i think we see um you know i have uh when when i have a, a swim team come in or I have a new class of freshmen come in. I have some that uh, have only done, you know, a thousand sit up type dry land training uh, for so many years and others that have uh, lifted five, six days a week all throughout high school. And it's like, how do I, you know, fit both of these people into uh, an advantageous training program for them without going too deep into individualization that I'm, you know, tearing myself apart, but something um, that's very scalable and helpful for both of them that, you know, they may or not have been, you know, super exposed to uh, prior to coming in. And like, uh, I think during our, like our ground zero or block zero training phase, that's something that's really helpful for us to just to kind of check boxes for, for everybody is like, you know, you can, you can uh, prescribe these different ISOs and um, different methods of them and manipulate other qualities of the ISO to make them, you know, more appropriate for either the younger or higher training age. And everyone can kind of still get that uh, benefit out of it. Um, when it comes to like going through like the different, I guess, if you were to, you know, put them in like a linear progression, like going from like, overcoming yielding uh ballistic um maybe kind of back to the return to play standpoint uh are there are there certain benchmarks either like objective or subjective that uh kind of help you understand like okay uh you know this athlete may be kind of ready to move on from uh you know this extensive to intensive um you know, overcoming isometric or, um, you know, go from, from one variation to another, or is it just kind of, you know, up to you as the practitioner and your coach's eye knowing like, okay, this is probably the appropriate stimulus for them. Or, uh, what, what are some of the benchmarks that you may see to, to kind of help progress from one mode to the next? Yeah, I would say specifically from an isometric standpoint, so like, well, I'll backtrack. If we're talking about just return to play in general, right? Like we're going to have very specific and clearly laid out objective and subjective baselines or benchmarks for exit criteria from phase to phase. Right. Um, and that's going to depend a lot upon the injury, right? Everyone is going to be different. Every injury is going to be unique. Every athlete's going to be unique. Um, from an isometric standpoint though, I would say it's going to be partially coach's eye and just understanding like, where is this athlete at and what do they need? Um, but also just, you know, emphasis of the block and what they're ready for. So obviously like if, you know, if we're in a strength block and, you know, we're early on and we're working with an athlete and return to play, you know, something that I'm 
you know, a big component of is just, you know, hammering breaking strength or that, you know, eccentric strength, right? Um, so just starting with, you know, basic yielding isometrics there and then naturally working along that kind of same linear progression. It's like, okay, now we have an ability to load and we've increased kind of our, you know, our breaking mechanism. Let's let's kind of take that the other way now and progress to some more overcoming things. And then from there, you know, once we feel like they've kind of, you know, surpassed that point, getting into some more of the intensive, you know, switches, catches, and drops. But a lot of that, so much is that going to depend upon the athlete, right? You know, like I just finished up with an ACL case, uh, just got cleared for a turn to play coming back this spring. And, you know, this kid was super strong, upperclassman. You know, he's trained his entire life, um, super compressed kid, like loves the weight room. And so I was able to kind of take him and just run with it from day one of like, all right, let's go. And he loved every minute of it versus, you know, I think, you know, some of these more underdeveloped maybe athletes or athletes that don't have maybe the same training age, like they may be able to progress, you know, to return to play without ever getting back to some of those more intensive methods, just because, you know, that's not what they need at that time. Like they just continue to need that and develop some of those more strength qualities. So I, I think there's a lot of different things that are going to go into it. Um, but training age, time, and injury are probably going to be the ones that kind of end up making the decision for you. No, for sure. Um, I guess a, a, another important question, uh, maybe for either my ego or your ego, when it comes to uh, – certain like isometric testing what is your max iso mid thigh pull you know aaron it's been a little while um <laughs> the old back injury hasn't treated me too well over the years so oh that's right i'd be that's lying right. to see if i've uh got under the mid thigh pull in a minute um that's what that's what interns are for so yeah there you go that's fair fair enough um well, cool, man. Well, just to, to switch gears a little bit, uh, I know another thing that it seems like you guys have done a, a pretty good job at um, is just the the assessment side um, with the the isometric stuff, but also um, asymmetry, uh, bilateral asymmetry things as well, and kind of how you use that into uh, either like your baselining for some of your athletes or just uh, general athlete profiling. Um I think, uh, you know, with asymmetry assessment, some people kind of get lost in this, uh, like, you know, trying to perfect or completely balance out like asymmetry in an athlete when like in reality, like some of the best, best athletes in the world are the best compensators and, you know, have a certain degree of asymmetry. But um, with like, I guess, that goes into a couple questions of like, what kind of asymmetry testing do you guys do? Um, how do you actually utilize it? And like, what implications might it have in some of your training programs? Yeah. So I'll start with like, from a baseline standpoint, the second an athlete gets on campus, uh, we're going to get them on the force plate the first thing we can, just in case, you know, obviously something unfortunately happens. We have some sort of historical data to work from and, Primarily, the first thing that we're going to look at is just counter movement jump. And that's kind of where this whole thing started of kind of my digging into asymmetries. Um, it's just kind of always made sense to me that they matter, um, you know, but I really wasn't sure why. Like, 
I, I think it's kind of common sense to say like, yeah, you probably don't want to be much stronger on one leg than the other. Right. Um, that can lead to compensations, you know, decreased performance, some of these things, but kind of went down a rabbit hole of, okay, how can we actually look at these things? What's an appropriate asymmetry like you had talked about and you know, what's inappropriate and then, you know, what do we actually do from there? Right. Like my biggest thing, I think in my role has been, you know, just trying to create as much actionable data as we can. So going back to the counter movement jump, you know, we laid out this, you know, this model of, zero to 10% plus or minus either way from a braking standpoint on each leg, green light, right? We're all good to go. That's totally normal. Um, athletes are going to be, you know, asymmetrical like you had talked about, but what's an appropriate amount and what do we at least need to look into, right? Because some athletes may be very asymmetrical and that may be totally fine. They've been able to stay healthy their whole careers. Cool. Like as long as we're aware of it and we're monitoring it, that's fine. Um, but anything from that at kind of 10 to 15%, that's going to be a yellow flag for us. Like, okay, why is this athlete here? You know, is an injury history standpoint? Um, are they feeling okay? Who do we need to talk to? Who do we need to kind of discern this information to just kind of make sure that, you know, we're not missing something. And then anything greater than 15%, that's going to be a red flag. And that's when we're going to have a conversation about, okay, there needs to be some sort of intervention. Um and we need to get all the necessary parties involved, whether that's the athlete, the sport coach, sports medicine, and kind of talk about why this is happening. Um, and it may just be something as simple as I kind of rolled my ankle out of practice, came in and jumped, is what it is, feel fine now, cool, right? We're good to go. Um, but from a baseline assessment standpoint, then we're going to take them to a single leg jump. Um, a lot of really cool research out there on – you know, looking at some of these more single leg jump driven metrics and how much more beneficial they are. Uh, that's kind of one thing I found digging into the research is that actually that a counter movement jump actually based on strategy can hide some of these, you know, pretty gross asymmetries. You know, I've taken athletes that have had 25% asymmetry on one leg, which is pretty drastic, right? Um, gotten them on a force plate on a single leg jump and, you know, they're completely symmetrical, right? So for me, that just tells me that's one, either just a strategy that they've developed over time or a compensation or just, you know, some sort of movement restriction that's forcing them to use that leg more, right? And that's when we would kind of step in there and assess that. But from a single leg jump standpoint, we found that, you know, athletes with a gross asymmetry from a single leg output run slower, you know, jump lower, um, and just generally seem to get hurt a little bit more often. So that's kind of where we started. We created this flow chart of, all right, once they've kind of failed that initial, you know, counter movement jump test, take them to the single leg jump test, we're still seeing asymmetries. Then we're going to go into a flow chart of, okay, uh, anything uh, less than 10%, um, we're going to be – all good. Um, it's easy to get wrapped up and, you know, always trying to have an intervention. But I, I think one thing that we've learned is that we can't overreact to all these things. Um, athletes are going to be asymmetrical. And, you know, at the end of the day, we kind of need to be okay with that at some point. Uh, from there, though, anything greater than 10%, we're going to look at injury history. We're going to take them through a joint by joint eval 
working up all the way from the toes all the way to the neck, um, taking them through all planes of motion, frontal, sagittal, transverse, try to identify, okay, is this is this a structural issue of, you know, ankle mobility, hip mobility, um, the way their pelvis sits, T-spine, whatever that is, and then coming up with some sort of corrective program from there, or um, MII is what we call it, is a movement impairment intervention. Um, and then just gradually working with them through that, as well as uh, a major emphasis on unilateral loading, and both from a you know a strength standpoint, grinding standpoint, as well as a you know kind of some accentuated eccentrics from a single leg standpoint of really trying to hammer uh, some of those like eccentric rate of force development uh, loading protocols on that limb. Well, that's great. I have like a lot of you got my wheels turning now i got a lot of questions that kind of come out of all that um what first thing um i i love the the use of like a counter movement jump from a, a bilateral counter movement jump from an asymmetry standpoint but uh one thing that i've noticed or had trouble with is i guess just the variability jump to jump uh with like some of our athletes um and this just may be, you know, poor cueing on my end or something else. Um, but do you see like maybe with some populations like a soccer versus a, a volleyball or something where like uh, that asymmetry of whatever metric you're looking at from even if I just had every athlete do two jumps, um, the variability between their first jump to their second jump could be, you know, 15% favoring one leg, 15% favoring the other leg, the second jump. Um, and I know that's been kind of a, a struggle for, for me as far as like, how do I, like, what do I really take out of this? Um, is it because of that, like, whether it's the inconsistency of the strategy of their jump, do we need to perform enough tests with that and give them the feedback so that they understand like, you know, what, I don't know, almost give them like a quick feedback so that they can understand like how they're jumping. Like, do you see that variability very often? Or if so, like what kind of populations? Yeah. So I would say like, yeah, you're actually spot on. It's it's pretty crazy. Like what you can see jump to jump working with an athlete. Um, I, I haven't seen a whole lot of things sport to sport specifically, but you know, we're working with, you know, college kids. They're generally not jumping at super ideal times, right? I think they're coming in after practice. they got a lot of things going on. Um, the reality is you're going to have a lot of athletes that maybe aren't as locked in on testing from day-to-day -day standpoint. And it may just take them a jump to kind of, you know, recenter themselves and kind of, you know, focus. Um, but yeah, definitely do see some discrepancies from jump to jump. I'd be lying to say if I've found, you know, any like specific trends with it, but I do definitely believe that's why we need to look at averages of that day and yeah. not get too caught up in one thing. Like if there's one thing I found about force plays is it's very easy to overreact to some of these things. And 90% of the time we can identify some of these, you know, gross outliers, which is a conversation of the athlete of like, you know, how are you feeling? Um, are you tired? Uh, you got something going on or did you just half-ass that jump? So, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No doubt, man. Um, back to the, so the single leg jump, uh, 
that's that's interesting to hear. I'll have to look or maybe kind of trial that out with uh, using that as kind of an extra barometer for, uh, I guess, validating like their jump day to day as well. If like you see more symmetry with that versus their bilateral. Um, have you ever paired something like the single leg counter movement jump with like a single leg isometric as well uh, to almost make I don't kind of like a, a quasi like single limb DSI, so to speak, or uh, use anything like that in conjunction together uh, from a, a single leg standpoint or single limb standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's primarily going to be in the return to play process. So I would say like specifically with our, my last ACL case, one thing that we did a lot of um from a phase completion standpoint and some of our benchmarks were based off of uh, joint specific isometric testing, um, mm-hmm. primarily from Alex Natera's uh, run specific isometrics. So for me looking at, okay, a knee isometric ISO, ankle isometric ISO, hip isometric ISO at 10 degrees uh, knee bend, as well as 90 degrees knee bend. And then also having them do their single leg jump continuously throughout the week has really served us well. And I think identifying like, okay, like not just is there a gross asymmetry issue from left to right leg, but like, can we hone in on the specific joint of, okay, what is it actually? Um, And what do we, what quality do we need to address with that actual joint? Right. Is it, you know, just, is it the knee from a strength standpoint or is it the knee from, you know, a ballistic standpoint? So like, yeah, they may be able to reach like the same levels of peak force from right to left knee. But then when we start looking at, you know, time dependent variables of peak force at 100 milliseconds, peak force at 200 milliseconds and start to identify, it's like, oh, well, from a strength standpoint or gross output standpoint, these limbs are very similar. But from a, you know, rate of force development standpoint, this injured leg is still way behind, right? So that tells me that structurally we're probably in a good position it's just more of a a software standpoint of like okay we need to develop some of these more you know time dependent variables and some of these more uh power driven metrics yeah and that's such a good point because i think you know it's selfishly like we want to check that box so quick of like oh yeah look at look at our like the total output of like affected versus unaffected limb and like we're good, uh, send it. But like, if, yeah, if neurally like that, um, that RFD, uh, you know, isn't there. I mean, that's, that's an implication for injury, um, or re-injury in that affected limb. So, uh, I think that's a really good point. Um, circling back again, I know you mentioned, uh, the, the movement impairment intervention, um, of like how, what you may pair some of the, the testing with, or like when you look at some of these asymmetry values, like kind of your investigative way to uh, figure out what may be going on. Can you maybe just like hit on some, some big rocks or uh, I guess the, the main tests kind of like moving up the chain of what that, that MII might look like. Yeah. So that was something that was brought over from our new director, Rob Hornet. Um, He's, he's kind of been all over the country. He's worked in high level basketball and, you know, the NBA, um, Division One, you know, Power Five college basketball uh, came to us from Memphis last year. But, you know, 
looking at some of these more closed chain tests and, you know, starting to pair that with some of our more dynamic testing. And that's been a huge, you know, had a huge impact on me and kind of the way that I see movement and something that I've really started to dive into lately is some of these more, you know, table driven closed chain assessments are, I get, yeah, like working from the toes all the way up to, you know, the neck, um, all these different patterns and whatever it is, right. That's, that's a whole nother conversation for a different time. But like, I, I think for where I'm at in my career, man, I, I find myself kind of asking the question constantly of why and like, you know, I've got a pretty good general understanding of, you know, training and what it is that I do in my system. But, you know, you always have these kids pop up with, you know, this kid's got a tight hamstring or this kid just really has no access to internal rotation or this kid is, you know, posture is this, that or whatever. Right. And it's like they move in a certain way. And what I've found is that these closed chain, you know, table assessments really kind of help me connect the dots between isolated testing and dynamic movement. Just because like, I, I think for so long, we kind of play this guessing game of like, okay, like we know there's an issue wrong, but what actually is it? And that's kind of what keeps us up at night. Right. But I think getting into some of these more table driven assessments has really helped me kind of connect those dots. And then from there it's identifying, okay, is there an asymmetry from left to right, you know, that's inappropriate? We know that there is going to be some, you know, asymmetries based upon sport, right? Like if I'm working with a baseball athlete, like, you know, I'm probably not going to chase asymmetry from an external shoulder rotation standpoint, right? That's that's probably a big part of who they are and why they are what they are, right? But what is inappropriate and what's appropriate bandwidth? And that's going to depend upon the sport and the athlete. And then trying to address some of those things. And then just, you know, gross, uh, you know, lack of ability, um, just whether that's, you know, yeah, lack of internal rotation, lack of, you know, big toe flexion, whatever that is, and then just developing them a very specific movement intervention program to start to correct some of those things, right? So for me, taking them through that test, coming up with four, you know, specific kind of two to one, three to one corrective programs based on an asymmetry standpoint of like, okay, um, we're lacking on this side. Let's really target that, you know, side from a three to one standpoint of, you know, three sets that side, one set the other side, um, and then just reassessing after the intervention, right? And I think what we've really had success with is, you know, taking people through these tests and these things, creating case studies, and then actually tracking, okay, did this intervention make a difference from point A to point B? And if not, what do we need to change? And if it did get, you know, the adaptation that we were after, then great. You know, we, we know we're on something and we can start to build this library of, okay, improving assessments and some of these uh, movement impairment programs. Oh, that's, that's awesome, man. I think that's definitely like next level of where a lot of us, you know, really want to get to. Um, I think uh, a lot of places or, you know, people are, can can say that they do a pretty decent job on like the output uh, standpoint and saying like identifying either like, hey, maybe here is the outcome issue, but like what's the what's the internal problem kind of associated with that is something that like 
and personally, I, I still struggle with a lot. Um, you know, we, we still kind of do like just our bastardized, like FMS type screen, or, you know, we trialed around a little bit with, um, you know, some kind of mocap and, uh, still far from, you know, where I personally would want to get for like how I utilize it from a, a programming standpoint and like the implications into an athlete's program. But it sounds like you guys have got a good system or working on a real good system there to kind of get things going, man. That's awesome. Um, anything like what, uh, I guess just as far, we'll kind of wrap up with like, you know, what, what's next for, for you, for Connor or, or for, for Liberty, uh, as for, far as like things that you guys may be working on or, uh, things that you would really like to kind of dive into next. And, uh, you know, like you mentioned earlier, like when you, when you, when you're a young coach, kind of dive head first into a sport that you may not fully understand just because that may be the lowest hanging fruit for you. Like, um, you know, what may be the next thing for you or for, for y'all staff is as a whole of like, what's, what are you diving into next? Yeah. So I would say, I would say probably the biggest thing that we're working on right now as a whole from the staff is we're, we're trying to really hammer out and lay down these long-term athletic development plans. Um, and just trying to develop some models for what that should look like, not just from a sport to sport standpoint, but from, you know, what does the Liberty athletes experience come in from day one to, you know, year five and when they leave and kind of building out some of those programs of, you know, block zero, um, emphasizing, you know, super rudimentary things, um, but are going to serve as a catalyst for the rest of their career with us just from a basic movement standpoint and understanding, okay, uh, patterning, uh, just squat, hinge, push, pull, you know, whatever that is, brace, rotation, and just, you know, really setting them up for success. Because I think it's it's tough because with a lot of these teams, like they're expected, I think, to come in and play right away. And so we as coaches, I think, feel that we need to prepare them for that. But we also need to understand that, you know, ideally we're going to have these athletes for – four to five years even um, and what's going to help them get the most out of their development during that time with us. So for me, that's starting with again, block zero um, hammering out some of those foundational qualities. Once they kind of graduate from that, moving on to more foundational things where really all of our emphasis is just going to be on uh, strength and capacity, right? Ham we've, we've hammered the patterns. Let's add some strength to it, increase, you know, general capacity um, just through linear periodization of, you know, we're going to, we're going to build out capacity. We're going to build out strength and we're going to build out speed. And then we'll probably repeat it a time or two, um, after about a year. And, you know, again, these benchmarks are pretty, pretty, uh, more so guidelines than anything for the sport coach to work from. But from there, you know, working on a little bit more of an intermediate program of, okay, focusing on a little bit more of a dynamic effort standpoint, starting to address the middle of that force velocity curve, starting to introduce some more advanced plyometrics, some more advanced, you know, weightlifting derivatives, some resistant sprinting protocols of, you know, force of velocity driven uh, qualities and trying to give that athlete just a little bit of taste of, you know, what that individual needs while also providing them with a, you know, foundational aspect or an intermediate aspect Right. And that's where a lot of our athletes will probably end the majority of their career at uh, just due to the nature of their sport. You know, the amount of time that we have with them, if we are fortunate enough to have an athlete, you know, for four plus years and, you know, 
they've gotten to the point where they've they've kind of squeezed the juice on all those you know more remedial qualities with some of these new you know new sports science initiatives trying to create like some really individualized protocols of like okay like you know as long as we can maintain the qualities that we've developed up to this point how can we really squeeze the like the last little bit of toothpaste out of that tube of helping that athlete get get the most out of their genetic potential right and that's where i think things get really really fun uh that's obviously like you know as a sports scientist i get really excited because that's when we start talking about you know uh force velocity profiling load velocity profiling uh jump profiling uh whatever that is right but you know kind of coming back to understanding of like during my time here it's like if we don't check those other foundational boxes first we're we're robbing the athlete of you know the things that they really need and they're actually going to pay dividends for them in the long run. Yeah. But at the same time, like, um, like the more you focus on those precursors too, like just the more outcome or output that you get when you do get to some of those more like advanced methods of, uh, assessing and training. Um, I think, and I can totally relate like the impatience as a strength coach to want to jump to some of those, uh, more I, I don't know if advanced is the right word but just uh more particular uh styles of assessing and then training uh early on um just because it may be the you know the the cooler fancier thing but at the same time like yeah we're gonna have four to five years with most of these athletes like um it's it's uh whether we like it or not it's got to be a slow cook process right and um, I think that, you know, that's something I can definitely do a better job of is like coming up with the, the, almost like that kind of quadrad, uh, planning standpoint, rather than just like the annual plan, uh, like how we're going to progress everybody and then just rinse and repeat for, you know, four to five years, that may not be the best method. So I, I definitely love where your guys heads at or, or with that. And, um, you know, as you kind of continue to build that out, would definitely selfishly like to to maybe see or hear a little bit more about what that looks like from like a a freshman to senior grad student uh, standpoint. So that's awesome, man. But uh, I know it's it's uh, it's been what about forty five minutes now. I know you're you you got to get back to work, and um, I really appreciate you, Connor, just kind of hopping on to this and talking shop. Um, it's it's great for me just to kind of catch up a little bit too. Um, I, I think that, you know, if I were to go back and like, let's say I lose my job today and I was like, oh crap, I got to go back and, and start as an intern somewhere. You, you'd be the first person I call to kind of come and see like just the, the top to bottom, like assessment, the training and progression standpoint of like what you're doing with your athletes and y'all's whole program. So really appreciate what you guys are doing and what you in particular are putting out. Um, I know it's helpful for a lot of people and uh, really, really good stuff, really digestible and uh, really useful and uh, really appreciate it, man. Appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you guys. I appreciate you having me on. It's, you know, it's, you spend so many years taking away from other people and listening to these things. Um, and you finally kind of start getting to a point where it's, you know, still have a long, long ways to go. Um, the more I learn, the dumber I get, yeah. um, unfortunately, but getting to share some of these things and, you know, hopefully help some of those other people out that the way that, you know, other people help me out is, it's been really impactful and really, 
really brought a lot of uh, joy to my life. So I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, no doubt, man. We appreciate you. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, I'm sure we'll get Connor's uh, social media links or any sort of contact info out with us as well if you want to reach out with him for any questions. And again, thank you, everyone, for for listening. And as always, hail to Pitt. (laughs) 